Hi again, everybody. It's Monday. We're going back in time, but not really that far from here. We're going to Bardstown, Kentucky to talk about my old Kentucky home. A lot of great music in America was written in the 1800s by Stephen Foster. He wrote about Jeannie with the light brown hair and my old Kentucky home. I went to my old Kentucky home with our microphone and my tour guide was a wonderful woman involved in city government and a lot of other things, Dixie Hibbs, who pronounced her name Dixie Hibbs. Anyway, Dixie told me that my old Kentucky home was quite an international tourist attraction. We have people who come from all over the world to see my old Kentucky home and the Stephen Foster story, which is the musical drama you were referring to. And uh, they are amazed at how beautiful the natural beauty as well as all of the history and heritage we have here that we enjoy year-round. It's not the performance of the musical that depicts Stephen Foster's life and his courtship of Jeannie and uh, his songwriting career. It's been going on since 1959 and it is one of the top five outdoor musical dramas in the United States. So we've had thousands and thousands and thousands of people <laughs> who've come to enjoy that. But they got here and said, oh, look what a great town and look at these wonderful old buildings and architecture and activities that they could do. And so they not only stayed an extra day, they came back and brought their friends. Yeah, it's, it's a gorgeous part of the world. It, it's interesting you said that he courted genie. It's nice to know there actually was a oh. genie with a light brown hair. There was not only a genie, her name was Jane. And like many times, uh, we have nicknames or shorting, shortening of the uh, name. So uh, he referred to her as genie and wrote a song about her. And uh, the song that the presentation, the musical drama, was written by Paul Green, who is a noted um, author of outdoor dramas and has been very popular and very, uh, the music and the color and everything that's going on. That's one of the, th the best things about the drama. It appeals to every age and, and men enjoy it. Uh, you know, I always say that with a tongue in cheek, you know, there's a sexist remark right there, but <laughs> the men enjoy it because uh, they like to watch how it's produced, how the, uh, the moving of the um, uh, scenery and the houses and things of this sort. And then, too, it brings back memories of, of their youth when uh, they learned uh, Camptown Racist when they were in school and, and Oh Susanna and all the songs that are folklore here of, of America. You know, one of the things about Stephen Foster's songs that I think makes them so endearing is to depart for a half second. I remember I must have been in my teens and I finally came to the realization that Old Man River was not a Negro work song, mm -hmm. that uh, Jerome Kern had written it. And I thought, you can't write a song like that. But so many of the things Stephen Foster wrote, which we kind of assume were part of the country or were always there, came from his pen. I mean, he, he just played an enormous part in the popular music of the era. When was he in his heyday? It, it, mm -hmm. well, when was he writing? The majority of his writing was done in the uh, late 40s, early 50s. And you're talking about 18. 1800, yeah. yes, 1800. <laughs> when you're here in Bardstown, when I start talking about the past, I'm usually a century or two behind. Uh, it's not like last week, it's last century. But uh, Stephen Foster was a native of Pennsylvania, and he ne he didn't live in Kentucky. He wasn't uh, didn't live in the South. He actually did most of his writing and living in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He uh, was a cousin to the John Rowland family here in Bardstown, and that's why 
inside the song, My Old Kentucky Home, was written not about his own home, but about his cousin's plantation in Kentucky. Now, Foster worked down on the waterfront in Pittsburgh, and he was... Um, exposed, I guess is the best word, uh, to a lot of the melodies that the, the black uh, workers, the uh, steamboat workers, and the uh, bringing the supplies and the cotton and all everything up and down the river. And he heard the singing and the, the words and the melodies, and that lodged in his brain. He was a very imaginative, creative man, and his songs are a result of everything that he was exposed to from the time he was a little boy, when he first started hearing about the Rowan Plantation or our cousin John's uh, farm and what they did here for hospitality, and until as a young man he would hear about um, uh, southern rivers and, and southern activities and camp town races. I mean, horse racing in the south or, uh, run neck and neck, so to speak. There's a phrase in the drama that they say that Foster shed songs like dogs shed fleas. And it was very easy for him to write. Uh, it's like an artist, it's very easy for them to paint. And in this creative um, mode and, and movements, they aren't as business-minded as other people. They're not into balancing the books and making sure the bills are paid. They're into creation. And he was a typical artist or a typical um, professional that way. He, he wasn't so worried about where the money was going to come to pay for the next meal. It was, uh, let's get this phrase right, or I need a word for this to rhyme, or I need the melody. And so that's my memory of, or my reaction to Stephen Foster was a very um, talented man who needed a keeper. Did uh, did he reach popularity in his own lifetime? Was Was he recognized, or was all of this, as so often happens, after someone's death? His songs were being sung during his lifetime, and he uh, got the recognition, or he, he had the... Uh, um uh, satisfaction of knowing? Yeah, yeah, satisfaction, experience of having heard his songs being used in the minstrels of the day. Uh, Money-wise, he did not achieve great income from that. But later, of course, later on, his family would consider, would continue to, to get royalties from, from his songs. So he did, uh, financially, he did receive some uh, compensation there. But having his songs sung and appreciated by the the general public really was his, his payoff or what... what Again, he, his matter of death, you mentioned earlier, he died in New York. He died as a uh, result of having fallen, and, uh, and we think about fallen now, but he actually fell in the cold, was injured, and died of pneumonia. There's some thought that his uh, drinking caused him to fall, and at that time, uh, a lot of people, um, you know, after a meal, or they would go to the saloons for a meal, you, have, you got a free meal if you'd bought a drink, so to speak, and he was living in New York in the Bowery area, and uh, I think it was a combination of not taking care of himself, falling down in the cold, developing pneumonia, and, and dying. But died a young man. Um, if he had not died at that age, there's no telling how many songs he would write. One of the questions I consistently ask people is what is the reaction of people who come here, not just from the U.S., but, for example, foreign visitors? Do you find that, uh, if not the name, the songs are pretty well known around the world? Well, our first... Um exposure or the the thing that brings people here first is the idea of my old Kentucky home. I'd like to see what the song was about or is was is there really an old Kentucky home? And quite often people have in their minds it's a log cabin because he talks about uh, 
young folks rolling on the old cabin floor. Well, he's talking about the, the slave cabins or the plantation cabins in the back. This house is a federal-style mansion, solid brick, built between 1800 and 1818. It's uh, very elegantly um, furnished with family furnishings. Over 75% of the furnishings inside came from the family. Uh, it is a has been restored and redecorated to re represent the 1820 to 1840 period. So, uh, and Foster would write this song in 1852, and which became the state song of Kentucky in the early 1930s. He, um, so when they come to visit, they want to see my Kentucky home. Well, when they get here, the, the reaction I get from my tourists and my visitors, and they're, they're both kinds. Visitors are those people who come and come back. Tourists are those people who are going through. Uh, they react to the people, the smiles that we give them, uh, the help that we give them, we, uh, the welcome that is here. When you walk in Bardstown and uh, you want directions, you can stop anyone and they'll be glad to give you directions. If you want to, um, to spend an hour, a day, a week, uh, there are, are enough activities and enough people to, to help you plan what you want to do. If you like antiques, we have antique shops, we have antiques in our homes. And if you like architecture, we have over 299 buildings listed on the National Register of Historic Places. Now this means a building is either architecturally or historically significant. Most of these buildings you can see as you walk down our streets. And if uh, I have had the opportunity when times people would come up and knock on the door and say, could I come in and look at your house? I have one something like it, or, or I, uh, I'd like to see what the woodwork is. And, and uh, quite often people will, yes, please come in, look around. It's not uncommon. I was asking Dixie, how did Bardstown, Kentucky, so close to Louisville, which became a, a major metropolitan area, how did it develop arts and culture, become a, a religious center, and still be so close to Louisville and not have that city overshadow it as the country developed in our early decades? Well, Bardstown didn't just happen. It actually was planned. Uh, Mr. William Bard and his brother David, who were Pennsylvanians, uh, owned the land that the town's on, and they knew their land would be worth more money if someone lived on it. So, in the spring of 1780, William Bard, who was a surveyor, went down to the bank of the Ohio River, the southern bank, right where today Louisville is. We uh, we say Louisville here in the south, too. Well, we? I grew up saying Louisville also. Okay. <laughs> uh, the, when the settlers first came to the area of Kentucky from Pennsylvania and northern Virginia and Maryland, they came floating down the Ohio River. That was the main road. It was the historic interstate, if you want to call it, the easiest way to get here. And as they floated down, when they got to the falls of the Ohio, and again, this is where Louisville is today, and the reason Louisville is there is because the falls were there. No one with any sense went over the falls in their flatboat. They pulled over to the side, and Mr. Bard was standing there and said, I have a deal you can't turn down. I'm going to give you free rent if you'll come in and cut down trees and build a house 16-foot square. And he talked 33 people, most of them from Pennsylvania, into coming in here in the spring of 1780, and we've been here ever since. And Dixie Hibbs is right proud of her hometown, Bardstown, Kentucky, and its great heritage. Has a lot in common with Vincennes, by the way. Let's take a break, and we'll be back with more from Dixie Hibbs. I'm sorry, Dixie Hibbs. Ba 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 
Welcome back, welcome back. You know, we talk about how historic Vincennes is, although they let the town go to hell before they decided they could get high school kids and tourists coming in every day if they had tried. But anyway, Dixie Hibbs, former mayor of Bardstown, Kentucky, a city with a somewhat similar heritage. They had a lot of firsts down there. Before the break, she was saying a lot of the population came over from Pennsylvania. These people who came were looking for a better life, not only um, for their crafts. They were shoemakers, they were millers, they were uh, tanners, uh, they were blacksmiths, all types of crafts. Majority of people coming to Kentucky wanted a farm. Even today, we still are a farming community. Our county, agriculture, is the number one um, industry in our county today. These people wanted uh, better land, a new start, more room maybe for their families, and of course very soon they wanted education for their children. So we've always been a center for schools. We've had um, we can, what we would call an area of higher education, uh, a high school, uh, since, since 1788. We had a school here that many of the later leaders of Kentucky would go, go to school, not only Kentucky but Tennessee. Later on, we would have the Catholics' um, settlements and their, the growth of their churches and of their educational institutions. Uh, they, uh, we have two different sisters, uh, Sisters of Loretta and the Sisters of uh, Nazareth, Sisters of Charity of Nazareth, who were formed in Kentucky in 1812. They were nursing and educational, nursing and teachers. So they started schools, small schools, and then later academies and colleges. Uh, people have been coming here from all over the country, principally all over the South, Texas, Arkansas, Mississippi, Alabama, Louisiana, Mexico, Cuba. We had students to come up here to stay at our boarding schools. And this would go on from the 1820s until the Civil War period. You look at how long ago that happened. Um, I'm being from Southern Indiana. You say it seems like yesterday. <laughs> being from Southern Indiana, I worked for much of my career in Vincennes, which is one, which was about the only city out there. And there's a close tie there between George Rogers Clark, and that's another story we, we, we could get into. But it would seem that even though the intelligentsia knew about Bardstown, and a lot of people did, it is still in many ways a very well-kept secret. Yes. We, uh, we are on the way to many places. We are a stopover for lots of places. We have been a stopover since the 1780s and 90s. The first travel rider to come through here came through in 1788. So you're just following in the trail of those people before you. Uh, he wrote that Barnstown was a, a uh, progressive town with uh, over 50 log buildings and five stone ones. And this is in 1788, which at that time we're still fighting Indians in Kentucky. We fought Indians until 1795. So uh, I think the, the key to, to why we're here and and how what we became has to be in the people who settled the area not only the fact they were ambitious uh intelligent but they were willing to stand up and and uh and work toward these goals uh we really peaked as far as a community about 1840 hmm. now this doesn't mean we're not peaking today but in terms of the the history and the the growth and the buildings and all that was probably our peak period uh, the lawyers. John Rowan was an attorney, the man who built Mile Kentucky Home. Across the road would be Charles Anderson Wycliffe, another attorney. Wycliffe would become uh, a governor of Kentucky in the 1830s. Uh, Rowan was a judge, a court of appeals judge, and also the first um, 
uh, president of the Kentucky Historical Society. Well, you know, it, it would seem, you were talking about the influx of, uh, of the Catholic Church here, that this was a very tolerant community. I mean, there were places in that period of time Catholics couldn't go. There were places, you know, the, an entire city of Mormons got moved out of Illinois. It's yeah. part of our history we don't like to talk about. But it would seem that a great deal of the success here is the fact that this has always been a very tolerant community. Well, the Catholic settlers came in in the 1780s, and they didn't come to Bardstown. This is what a lot of people think, oh, you had a lot of Catholics here in Bardstown. No, we didn't. We had Catholic settlers all around us, within 20 miles in every direction. Uh, they owned farms. They were farming. Uh, they petitioned for a priest to come and take care of their needs. And this petition went to Baltimore. Bishop Carroll sent a priest. Actually, he sent several uh, over the next 20 years. In 1808, uh, he petitioned the Pope to create four new dioceses in the United States, creating New York, Philadelphia, Boston, and then Bardstown. Bardstown Diocese took in what's now Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Kentucky, and Tennessee. Wow. Now, you, you buzz down the road today in your car, and it's five hours from Bardstown to St. Louis. My daughter went to, to University of St. Louis, so I know how long it takes. Five hours on interstate. It was five or six or seven days on horse. And that the Bishop of Bardstown, Benedict Joseph Leger, and his uh, seminarians got all over that diocese in the periods of time. Uh, bishop Leger, the reason you were talking about the tolerance, he was a wonderful choice for a bishop. He was a very humble man. He was uh, appealed to the Protestants as well as the Catholics. Uh, story I tell on Bishop Leger, the Rowan family had a bad bout of cholera in 1833. Five members of the family would die in 24 hours. During that period, Bishop Flaget took two of the Sisters of Charity and came out here to the house, small Kentucky home, right over down the walk here, and he nursed them. He worked with the family trying to take care of these ill people. Bishop Flaget, of course, was Catholic. The Rowans were Presbyterians. Mm. And it's that type of an attitude that he had that has laid the groundwork for how well everybody gets along, uh, not only locally but in Kentucky today, because uh, uh, the tolerance is there, there's no question. In fact, Protestants would, would raise over 10000 of the approximately 25000 that it cost to build a cathedral. Wow. That one. Wonderful story. Talking about buildings, let's leave this comfortable park bench here and, and walk up to the building that is the main attraction here, my old Kentucky home. You say that this was Stephen Foster's cousin's house? John Rowan was a cousin. I mentioned uh, Foster stayed in Pennsylvania. The Rowans came here in the spring of 1780, and John was a, a young boy at that time. wasn't very strong. And his parents decided he needed to be taught a profession because they didn't think he'd be strong enough to be a good farmer. And they had him study law. And as a lawyer, he was a big success. He had the uh, tenacity. He had the intelligence. And he had just enough deviousness to, uh, to be very successful at the time. And uh, at this time, we had lots of problems with our land boundaries. Uh, the, um, we were, see, we were Western Virginia. Mm -hmm. until 1792. So when Bardstown was settled, we weren't Bardstown, Kentucky. We were Bardstown, Virginia. And when people came in claiming lands, you didn't have this nice big map, everything sectioned off like you would have in Illinois and Indiana later. Uh, flying over Illinois last week, I looked down and everything was so nice and straight. And I thought, now, if Kentucky had had that, <laughs> we wouldn't have my old Kentucky home. Oh, I know that great. there wouldn't have been any money to build it. That great grid system that uh, is, is in much of the Midwest works until you get out to the Rocky Mountains. Mountains, and then right. you can't do it. Happened that way, too.
Dixie, you were talking about this being a federal architecture. This this could just as well be in Philadelphia. Yes. Uh, a lot of the, uh, remember I said we were Virginia in our beginnings. Our culture, our law, and a lot of our architecture comes from Virginia. Even though our Pennsylvania people uh, brought the idea of building with stone down here, when they got to Kentucky, they found the clay. We had wonderful uh, supply of clay for making bricks. And this is why even today you see uh, brick houses. A lot of the visitors will come in and they'll react to all the brick houses. Uh, the design, uh, some of the people who, who wanted to build these houses had seen buildings in around Washington, D.C. or around Pittsburgh or, or um, Philadelphia particularly, and they came back with the idea of this is what they wanted their home to be. They built to last. They weren't going to move like we do today. I mean, this uh, even though John Rowan would have a, a townhouse in Louisville, uh, this was his summer home and his favorite home. This is where his family was raised and and uh, it was cooler out here than Louisville in the summertime. Well, now, years ago, what would this have looked like here? Obviously, a couple of blocks away, there's a paved state highway and a couple of motels across the street, and the gift shop is down the way. There is, I noticed, a cemetery as we oh, pass yeah. past. Well, most of our, our families are buried in private cemeteries, particularly out in the country, all over our county. We have, our genealogists have done a lot of work on, on uh, listing the people in different cemeteries, and in fact, We've even moved some people who, you know, needed to be moved because somebody was going to build a house over them. But what this would have looked like was a plantation. It was a working plantation. I'm going to talk about 1830. They would have had uh, animals. They would have raised uh, hogs and cattle. They had horses to ride. They also had all types of grain crops. Um, we didn't have cotton, but we had and another crop we had, which was the cash crop, was the hemp plant. Mm -hmm. We raised hemp in Kentucky. We made wonderful rope. Now, we don't think about using rope a lot now. You see it on the cowboy shows and things. But if you think about in the 1840s and 50s, the clipper ships were, were going all over the world. And they had sails that you had to raise and lower with rope. Mm. As you were out on the ocean, the salt water and the sun and the heat, your rope rotted. So when they came back into New Orleans, they purchased Kentucky rope. And that is really where most of the money came from in the 1800s for the Kentucky farmer. That was his cash crop, was the hemp plant to make rope. Mm. Now, when uh, the Philippines came along around the turn of the century, 1900, when you can get uh, your hemp from the Philippines cheaper than you could raise it in America, that's when the hemp crop started down there. Back with more from Dick uh, Dixie Hibbs <laughs> right after this. Welcome back. Don't forget my easy email address. It's so easy, nobody writes to me. They run into me in the grocery and at McDonald's, but nobody writes to bingo, B-I-N-G-O, at earthlink, earthlink.net. Bingo at earthlink.net. We're in Bardstown, Kentucky, at my old Kentucky home, and my conversation with the lady who showed me around continues. You know, this this is very reminiscent, for example, of Mount Vernon. Uh, turning around behind us, there's a smokehouse and a kitchen. It's hard for us today to realize that on the plantations, they had to be a self-contained city with a bakery and a blacksmith shop and, and everything you would need. 
you know, you can get in the car and be in Louisville here in 30 minutes, but uh, but back then you had to pretty well, I would think particularly when you're isolated in winter. Well, you're talking about getting to Louisville. It was a one-day ride on the stagecoach. You left at 5 in the morning from Bardstown. You got in Louisville 5 in the afternoon. Uh, you, you were, the self-sufficiency came here, not only everything from the cloth that you would uh, be wearing to uh, the preserves you'd have to put up for next winter. Uh, I know Mrs. Rowan, this is John Rowan Jr., she was left a widow at a young age and she had 10 children to take care of and she wrote to her uh, administrator saying please pay my bill at the local store I have nothing to eat they won't give me any more credit and the only thing we have to eat are the peaches in the orchard and you look at a house like this and think of all the wealth and all how wonderful this must have been but if you think even today a widow with 10 children trying to educate them and take care of them uh, so things aren't always as they seem and this is what we like to do about Bardstown when you come to Bardstown you can not only step back in the past, you're still in the present in that you see that we have preserved the best of the past and hopefully have learned from it. We were the first community in Kentucky to pass a historic zoning ordinance back in 1968. So we've been actively, governmentally preserving since 1968. Uh, I'm going to be a little perverse here and talk about one of the reasons that we have what we have is because of a depression after the Civil War. We, uh, the economy was not very good. The distilleries were starting to operate, but that still had not brought it back up like it was. So we couldn't afford to tear down and replace. The same thing in this century. So often we don't have the money. Uh, if you have a lot of money or a lot of progress, you go in and tear down the old and put up new. We have, in our period of uh, development, there have been times that we haven't had the money to tear down and put up new, so consequently we re re reuse the old. And uh, there was a reason for that. I'm not sure why. Maybe it's the fact today that we are a little place, a place that people like to come and and visit and uh, and kind of connect with the past. But the um, today there is a lot more appreciation for the our heritage, not only our physical heritage, but also. Uh, the people who have gotten us this far and why did they do this just like recognizing Stephen Foster mm -hmm. we would have an old town we would have a preserved town without Stephen Foster but he has opened us up to the world as far as uh, uh, encouraging people to come here yeah, your downtown section is a is enough of a tourist attraction, as you say, without ever mentioning. I, I had lunch in one of the oldest continuously operated restaurants in this part of the U.S. There's a bed and breakfast. I understand was the jail at one great. time. It's a great. Mm -hmm. It was used to 17. Excuse me. It's from 1819. It's the original jail. Uh, solid stone construction, beautifully done. And then in 1874, they added a back section with cells in it. And then in 1987, they finally quit using it. We used that jail from 1819 to 1987. Wow. And now, of course, we're still using it. It's, uh, there, it's a bed and breakfast today. Of course, we always say it's always been a bed and breakfast, but different people paid the bill. So. <laughs> like Dixie Hibbs, can we uh, look around my old Kentucky home here in the, the final? Inside? Yeah, let's, let's, let's go inside these, up these sturdy is, stone. Boy, what a beautiful stone. door. Yeah. You could. This is a coffin door. A coffin door. They call this a coffin door because they would carry the coffins out this way. It's awfully wide. Have I stepped back in time, or does this woman, do these ladies always dress like this? Well, let's see. They may have they may have tennis shoes on. If we just pick I up see. pick up the antebellum dress, there you are. Now see that's that's comfort. It certainly if is. If the lady in 1852 would have had tennis shoes, she would have had them on too. Let me let me ask you a question there. Uh, for those who can't see this on radio, there there are two lovely ladies standing here dressed as they would have been what 1800s, 1850s. What 
are hoop skirts like in hot weather? Horrible. They must be. <laughs> They're very hot. Uh, the home is air-conditioned, and that helps a whole lot. But it but, wasn't then. No, but no. if we go outside with these dresses on, it really gets unbearable. I know it's, it's difficult to, uh, to realize what it was like. I live in Washington, D.C., and I see some of these old, old office buildings. To think that there weren't that many women in offices at that time, but the men wore starched collars. They, uh, I, I, just, I just can't imagine. You look absolutely wonderful in that dress. Thank you. <laughs> what, what's it feel like to recreate that era for people? Is, 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 it, is it fun? How, how do children react? I mean, I'm sure that there are young children here who've never seen anyone dress like this. First thing they want to know is what's underneath. <laughs> they, they want to know why it stands out. Oh. And then you have to explain to them. That you've got hula hoops underneath. Mm -hmm. And they understand hula hoops. They understand hula hoops. That's right. Well, I'm going to go with Dixie here. Thanks, thanks a lot. We were just trying to get a, They were giving a tour. and uh, Yeah, and I barged in on it with my loud voice. We were just trying not to overcome the tour here. Uh, the, one of the things that I get asked a lot of questions about is why is the ceiling so high? Well, when you're in a southern building, uh, you're going to have high ceilings because they built for coolness. You want to get the heat away from you. you. Want, yes, yeah. and you want cross-ventilation. So this house has wonderful windows, has more glass surface than most houses in our town. And it was a way that Mr. Rowan showed his wealth as well as his good sense and that he's going to build these big windows to get your natural light in. Uh, today, there's only two little electric lights uh, illuminated here, and they are the old antique type, but you still have sufficient light in here. It's not a... Uh, and the house is surrounded by trees. It's in a very... Um, beautiful setting of the period. Everything, though, is so neat. I always walk in this room and want to throw a ball over on the floor or, <laughs> or a toy truck or something because this house had as many as 10 children in it at a time, and I'm sure it was never quite this neat. Is this technically the parlor? This is the parlor. See, we don't have those anymore. No, we have great rooms now. <laughs> I, uh, the, Garrison Keeler did a wonderful dissertation one time on his aunt's house about how the parlor, he seemed to think of it as such a needless room, but he always remembered it for two things. The Christmas tree was there and the caskets were and there. the caskets, and sometimes you entertained the minister when he came, the preacher, you took him to the parlor. Uh, Mrs. Madge Rowan Frost was the last owner of the home, and she was the granddaughter of the original builder. She lived here, her, uh, she was a widow, and, and lived out the years before it was sold to the state here. And I have talked with an older lady who talked about coming out here as a little girl with her mother, and they'd have tea with Mrs. Frost. And she said it was so dark and so dreary in the house, she was always a little scared, because mm. as a child, and, and the dark rooms and all, but Mrs. Frost had her shutters closed to keep the sun from fading her furniture and fading her carpeting. So it was a very typical Victorian thing to do, because we, uh, uh, the sun was really and still is very hard on your colors and all. This room is decorated in federal, which again, uh, you've got a um, kind of a Duncan Five style sofa there, but it is federal style. Carpeting almost looks like the Oval Office. Yes, uh, this was woven for this house back in 1980, 79. They did a uh, complete uh, renovation, redecorating of it at that period, and the carpet in the hallway and the the parlor and library and dining room. This house from the front looks like it has a central hall with two rooms on each side of the hall. But when you come into it, you realize you only have three large rooms in the hall. And that's because the kitchen wing was put on, uh, was actually built first, and they added the three main section, uh, two and a half story building to that. This uh, has an interesting um, flower arrangements in each room. We were very fortunate about five years ago, a gentleman who had studied in Holland and, and, and um, 
England came and offered to make flower arrangements for each room, tying in the colors, using flowers of the period. Uh, you don't think about, you know, they didn't have all the flowers we have today. Just like, uh, you know, you think about flowers have been around forever, but they keep developing new strains and all. So he knew enough to choose flowers that would have been here between 1820 and 1840, tied them into each room's decorating. So today when people come to visit, they, they not only can enjoy, they can learn. I mentioned to Dixie Hibbs that in spite of the fact that Bardstown was somewhat isolated and that homes such as my old Kentucky home did not have the modern conveniences such as air conditioning we take for granted today, there was a great degree of gentility there. There, uh, They had a lot of cultural advantages. You don't think uh, we had the... Um, I want to say opera singers, but you had performers, you had musicians who would come uh, whenever there was anything that uh, was culturally uh, important. Everyone came out for this. One of the other things I think is interesting uh, is the speaking. Today we turn on the TV and we hear uh, the politicians all arguing and speaking back and forth. At that time, the politicians came down and everyone came out to hear. A good orator was in great demand, and a good orator also made a great politician because getting the attention of the public and being able to uh, communicate with them and develop that uh, did very well. Well, there's a great story. Was it Edward Everett who preceded Lincoln in giving the Gettysburg Address who spoke for two hours? Oh, yes. And people wanted that. I mean, that, that yeah. was, as you say, the end. Then Lincoln gets up for a minute and a half and sits down and they weren't even ready to take his photograph yet. This is, uh, people of few words are, are not as appreciated uh, as, as those who go on and on and I guess that's why you're talking to me today because <laughs> I, I am definitely not a person of a few words that way. You know, when I listen to the Indianapolis 500 and Jim Neighbors sings Back Home Again in Indiana, I get goosebumps. Yes. What's it like uh, at Derby Day when they sing My Old Kentucky uh, Home? Everybody cries. <laughs> Everybody cries. It doesn't matter whether you're watching. I'm starting to cry thinking about yeah, it. Uh, when you're watching it on TV, or you hear it uh, play, or, the, or you hear someone else sing it, it's just like uh, my old Kentucky home, the song symbolizes everyone's home, no matter where they're from. Whether it's uh, they are from uh, New York City or uh, New Orleans, Louisiana, the sun shines bright. And it's because our memories are so bright about where we grew up and all the great the great uh, affection and love and, and uh, good things that happened to us in our home. I can tell you love this place. Yes, I do. Dixie, thanks a lot. You're welcome. Come see us. The music of Stephen Foster and my old Kentucky home. Welcome back, welcome back. I mentioned my email address, bingo at earthlink.net, and I got a message the other day from Roy who said, who was that clown you interviewed? Well, I thought he meant Bozo, but he was talking about Conrad Brooks, who was called the John Gielgud of bad actors. And he used to refer to himself, not that way, but he would say, you know, I've been compared to John Gielgud. Anyway, Conrad lived in my apartment house in Los Angeles. He was in Plan 9 from Outer Space. That awful Ed Wood movie. He played a young policeman. And I asked him after they made the Ed Wood story in which he was given the part of a bartender whether he thought the portrayal of himself and Ed Wood 
I should say portrayals, were fairly accurate. What about the movie? The movie was excellent. Great. I really enjoyed it. It's a kind of a sort of picture I like to see it over and over and over. And the guy who portrayed the young Conrad Brooks, the man who insulted Bella Lugosi in the film, his name was uh, Hinckley, Brent Hinckley, did an excellent job portraying me. He should have won the Academy Award. <laughs> what did it feel like to have someone play you? Well, I, uh, I enjoyed it. <laughs> you know, playing me, that's no big deal. I could have played myself, <laughs> but they wouldn't, they wouldn't let me. Don't quite look 23 anymore. Not really, yeah. But I, but I feel sometimes I'm 23. What, what was it like on the set of the movie, Edward, when, when all the friends and people suddenly got back together? They were looking to make it authentic. I'm sure the, the people talked to you about that because you, you're one of the few people remaining. Well, believe it or not, very few people spoke to me about Ed, about Edward. Really? Yeah. Well, mostly the movie fans. But on the picture set, I, I, which I did a cameo in the picture as the bartender, and I had a scene with Johnny Depp, which I asked him, can I get you anything else, kid? And, and they didn't say a word to me. He steps out of the bar and he meets Lugosi the very next scene. No, only Johnny Depp. I did a show in New York City uh, at the uh, at the Forum Theater in New York. He came over that evening, but uh, but he was celebrating. So we didn't get much to talk about Ed Wood. <laughs> Johnny Depp strikes me as being such a complex person. Mm -hmm. I mean, just almost multiple personalities in a way yeah a, a nice very nice man yeah I you, mean, you think I, he's gonna continue to be if he can stay healthy and yeah he's not get on drugs or something to be he, a good yeah, actor yeah well he's directing films now in fact That's right, he, yeah. he just directed a movie and i believe marlon brando's in it hmm. you know i wish he'd have used me <laughs> Well, you do look a little bit like Marlon. Ah, great. That, that makes me hat. feel good. Okay. <laughs> so my brother and I decided to go out that evening, and, and who we run across? Ed Wood. <laughs> <laughs> now, how did you pick your stage name? Your, your, my, brother, if, my brother Henry picked it for me, Brooks. If, if, if I may ask, your real name is what? Badersky. Conrad Badersky. Badersky, right. That's Polish. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so how did you, and your brother said Conrad Brooks. Got a nice ring to it. Thank you. Yeah, well, he's, uh, yeah, I got lucky, right? <laughs> um, yeah, so he just well, everybody in those days pretty much changed their names. Uh, mm -hmm. Celebrities, most of them did, you know. But today, days, they, uh, um, I don't know. They, they stick with their own names. We have Mary Steenburgen and mm -hmm. stuff. And she would have changed her name 30 years ago, probably. I imagine so, yeah. Well, here here we are. It's the Halloween season. You are remembered as being connected to Ed Wood and, and pictures which are of that horror or at least odd kind of genre. Mm -hmm. What was it like, albeit poor Bella Lugosi died yeah. at the beginning of the filming, but was it creepy on the set? I mean, you had this great big guy, Tor Johnson, playing the police yeah, chief, who used to be guy. a wrestler. That's right. He was one of my favorites. Of all the uh, uh, Ed Wood gang, he was my favorite. Uh, Tor, Tor was a great guy. Seems like a, you could just look at him. He had this big impish kind of attitude yeah. about him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Did you know when you were making Plan 9, and, and I don't mean to be critical here, mm -hmm. it's been called the worst major movie ever made in Hollywood, that because the sets were kind of thin and the same furniture that was on the outside of the house was used on the inside of the house and Ed Wood was doing it on a shoestring, did you think to yourself, boy, this is this movie has problems? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, uh, no I, I was getting paid, so it was no, pro <laughs> was, it was no problem there. Because uh, sometimes, you know, you can do a shoot for someone and, and you're lucky to get your money back. Got to go look for the producer for your money. No, with Ed Wood, it was always a, it was a, a, a good deal. I mean, Ed was kind of guy, if he used you in the film, he wanted to make sure he got paid. Incidentally, that was a union picture. Everybody got scale. Hmm. 
And and he had to do it in five days. And Wait, five, the whole five, movie? Five days. Five days shoot. Yeah. Well, now, it may not be a masterpiece, but I can't imagine well, close doing to that. It. In five, well, well, close yeah, to it. Pardon me. I'm sorry. <laughs> it, it may not be on a par, say, with the Ten Commandments, but it five days? Yep. Yep. And, he, and I tell you, it's rare because for a low-budget film like that, uh, a B movie, most of B films, uh, Monogram uh, or PRC or, um, uh, I mean, these um, low, what, what they turn out, low-budget films, they have about the maybe five, maybe ten to most uh, uh, characters. You know, the leads, the supporting act, ten is about the most. Not a big cast. No, well, ten, that's pretty, uh, like, that's yeah, but average. I mean, not a cast but of Eddie Wood had, a, Eddie come close to having a thousand. 30, uh, 30 players. Wow. 30 players. He had six, seven major stars. We had uh, Criswell. We had uh, uh, Bella Lugosi. We had uh, Vampira. Wild uh, Talbot. To, uh, no. Talbot, Tom Keene, and, and Tor Johnson. Sure. And, and Gregory Walcott. So you had seven major names. Well, now, the, the guy with the neat voice. And, then, and plus, uh, 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 um, Lovejoy. Not Lovejoy. Man Love. Uh, Man Love. Gregory? <laughs> Gregory, uh, not Gregory. Uh, um, but we'll come back to we'll it. We'll come back. What, what, yeah. I was, what I was saying is, if I'm not mistaken, you that wonderful line, you Earth people are stupid. Stupid, stupid, stupid. He was a radio announcer, yes, right? Yes, he was. Right. So he had that kind of from out of Gary San, Owens. From out of San Francisco. Right. You and I have a mutual friend who used to run a record store in downtown Los Angeles. He talked about all the people you'd run into at Coffee Dan's, a restaurant next door. Yeah. Anybody come to Hollywood, yeah, I don't care where you go, Coffee Dan's or the Music City. Uh, or even on the bill of a Hollywood and Vine, you, you see celebrities up and down or driving through, you know. And on Gower Street, uh, Sunset and Gower, right by Columbia Pictures, they had this, uh, the Gower Gulch. They had all these old uh, bit players, whether they were extras or bit players. People you've seen on the street in, in West, Western films, you've seen their faces. But you might not by name, but you say, I've seen that man. You know? <laughs> I think maybe the, sad, the saddest thing is when you come to Hollywood and Vine, you say, why am I here? There's no there when you get there. That's right. It used to be the Brown Derby, and it had some flake. Well, Jimmy yeah. Stewart star is, is on the corner there. But uh, other than that, how would you know but for the signs? There's nothing at the corner of Hollywood and Vine. Yeah. But right. yet it's one of the most famous intersections in the world. Yeah, that's true. Conrad, <laughs> thanks a lot. <laughs> uh, listen, uh, Dennis, I want to thank you very much. And uh, may I shake your hand? And. Yes. Uh, and good kind luck. Of a kind of feeling of great Hollywood, you know? <laughs> thank you, Mr. Gilgood. I thank you. Thank you again. It isn't often that you meet someone in Hollywood who knows he's bad and likes it. Conrad Brooks. What a funny guy. What a funny man he was. Conrad Brooks, by the way, his real name was Conrad Badursky. And sadly, he died about seven years ago after retiring to West Virginia. Back next week, and if you're not here, I'm going to be saddened. <laughs>